Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Founding Finance, William Hoagland. William Hoagland, author of Founding Finance. Uh, can you paint a picture for us of, if you were in Philadelphia in May or June of 1776, what you would have seen? Well, in May of 1776, um, you would have seen a lot of tension and fer ferment over the question of whether America was going to become independent at all. Um, and that sounds kind of late to be talking about uh, questions being raised about whether America was going to become independent. In fact, that was in some ways the mainstream position or considered the official position uh, only nine weeks before we actually declared independence. Um, and so I think you'd, you'd feel a lot of tension uh, if you were walking around Philadelphia at that time. Uh, the Im a, a British invasion was clearly imminent. Um, so nobody knew really what was going to happen. You'd see, you'd see militias uh, marching on the green and drilling and practicing for a war that was kind of ongoing but had been in a, something of a lull. Um, I, it was a pretty intense and tense place, I think. Well, who were the sides? Well, who would have been against independence here just a couple of weeks before the 4th of July? Well, it was the majority position of the Pennsylvania Assembly, uh, which was a very powerful and mighty institution, actually. Um, really the most important assembly on the, on the continent. And so um, a lot of very powerful, influential people. John Dickinson uh, was probably the, was the leader, really, of that, of that contingent that believed in um, protest and dissent, strong dissent, and even supported the war against England, but yet did not think that war should be for American independence, thought it should be for ultimate reconciliation within the empire. Who in Pennsylvania was for independence? There were a number of people in Pennsylvania for independence, and the people I have focused on um, are less well-known, uh, perhaps, than uh, some of the more famous founders we tend to talk about. Um, but one of the most famous was Thomas Paine, of course, a recent Philadelphian. He had only arrived shortly before. Um, but he was one of the leaders of the independence movement outside the Congress. Um, and then with him, other names that are possibly less well-known. Uh, Thomas Young, also a recent arrival in Philadelphia, fairly recent arrival, and James Cannon, uh, an important Philadelphian, and people who actually had a lot to do with creating the 1776 Philadelphia Constitution, and yet their names are not as well-known to us today as some of the more, those of some of the more famous founders. Can you explain how Pennsylvania went from uh, an election on May 1st of 1776 that elected an anti-independence legislature to what happened a few weeks later? Well, really what happened is the Pennsylvania Assembly, the elected government of John Dickinson, which, of which John Dickinson was the majority leader, was overturned um, in a, essentially a coup. In fact, I would call it a military coup because it was carried out by the militia of Pennsylvania against the m Assembly of Pennsylvania. Uh, the privates throughout the, throughout the state or the province or whatever one would have called it at that moment, that transitional moment, the, the privates uh, had been organized by James Cannon and Thomas Young and Thomas Paine and others I've just mentioned um, 
to overthrow Dickinson's government and bring in a more radically egalitarian government that was for independence, but also for uh, giving people like the privates, the militia privates, the right to vote and a greater political power. What would radical have meant then? Well, radical has a number of different meanings uh, then and when we talk about it, uh, th that history now. And so that, that's a great question to sort of ponder. I mean, it was radical enough in some ways for America to want to be, the American colonies to want to be independent of England. Um, so that's pretty sound, that was pretty extreme. Um, and yet many of the famous founders that we know about, John Adams, from John Adams to Thomas Jefferson to Washington and so forth, um, were not radical in the same way that, say, Thomas Paine and Thomas Young and James Cannon and other, other Pennsylvanians who overthrew Dickinson's government really were. I mean, they, the, uh, the radicals I'm talking about were sort of social radicals and really wanted a more egalitarian society in which wealth would be and, and finance would be more democratically controlled and wealth would be more evenly distributed. Um, so radical can mean a number of different things when we're talking about the late 18th century in America. How did the Pennsylvania Committee of Privates end up overthrowing the government? Well, the, at the very end, they said they sent a circular note around the entire, uh, the entire province and organized around the idea that it was time for that government to end. They had the support via work, the work, sort of back-channel work of John Adams and Samuel Adams and others in the Congress. They had the support of the Congress um, that was meeting, of course, in Philadelphia. But they, um, they ultimately sent a note to the, uh, to the assembly and said, we are not going to take orders from this assembly anymore because we are not represented in this house. And so it was a bloodless coup, but it was indeed a military coup. You say, uh, without the radicalism of Pennsylvania, American independence could not have been declared in the first week of July 1776. How people in Pennsylvania, the most staid and august of American colonies, managed to field the world's first working class uprising and install the world's first populist government throws new light on famous members of the founding generation. Well, can you explain that? Like, why isn't that better known? That story? Well, why it isn't better known, I cannot explain because I think it's one of the most dramatic and interesting stories of the period and it's why I write about it. I'm trying to get it better known in that sense. Um, and, and some of this stuff, you know, it's funny to talk about like sort of the unknown history or the secret history kind of tone that some of these stories seem to take on because, you know, they're not really secret. Um, they're not really unknown. I wouldn't know about them if historians hadn't written about them and if people at the time hadn't left enough evidence that the historians before me could have sort of sussed it all out to some extent. So I mean it is known, these stories are known um, by many historians, but why they aren't more discussed and more part of the, the, why the, why the wider history reading public is not already more aware of them, I'm not sure. I think to some extent there's been a move within academic history within professional history over the past 50, 60 years or so um, to be more interested in showing, however, with all the complexities and all the conflicts, nonetheless, more interested in showing a kind of founding era American consensus. Um, and these stories that I'm telling that really are known to historians tend to suggest that that consensus is not the only story, that there was actually immense conflict among Americans. Um, over such issues as equality and finance and regulation of the economy and so forth. Well, you, you talked about the radicals, about Sam Adams and uh, Thomas Paine. What would their vision have been for the country of an independent America? Well, I think many of the different founders had very different visions for the future of, a, of an independent America. 
And we know something about that, of course. We know that uh, when we came down into the 17, late 1780s and the 1790s that Madison and Hamilton, for example, disagreed over whether there should be a central bank. Madison thought it was unconstitutional and Hamilton thought it was a necessity of carrying out the provisions of the Constitution and they had a sort of a famous battle over that particular financial issue. Um, so we're aware, uh, I think, of some of the conflicts that, that fit, financial and political conflicts that fed in, but on the other hand, there are other visions as well. I mean, Paine's vision, for example, was unlike that of Madison or Hamilton, was much more a radically democratic vision. Um, and so you, be, you get these people collaborating in, say, in, in the 1770s, uh, 1760s and 1770s, collaborating for the end of independence, I mean, for the, for the goal of independence. But at the, they have very, very different and even di in, visions in dire conflict over what an independent America would really look like. Who's Herman Husband? Husband, to me, is one of the most fascinating and in some ways most important, um, not because he was so ultimately influential, but because his vision was so um, future-looking and so modern in some ways of that generation, and yet, of course, he's little known to us today. Um, a very interesting Pennsylvanian, one of the first white settlers of Bedford County, for example, and he settled up when that was a, a very remote place. He settled there as a fugitive from justice in North Carolina because he had taken part in the 1760s in something known as the North Carolina Regulation, an uprising of small farmers and artisans and the landless and tenants um, against, against corruption in government and a sense that government was, was privileging the wealthy. Um, and that regulation, led by husband and others, was put down by the royal governor of North Carolina. But one of the interesting things about that regulation, it was called the regulation, that uprising, is that the governor in that case had the support of the elected American assembly that was of North Carolina that was on other issues, famous issues, revolutionary issues, coming at odds with the governor. So um, husband represents a sort of a third, a third way another bunch of people uh, who really ordinary Americans of the period, smaller scale people who wanted not just independence ultimately, but wanted a more democratic kind of government, especially when it came to the economy. You say that uh, Herman Husband, he was involved with the Whiskey Rebellion. He was put on trial for that. And you say he's, he's an ancestor of the modern liberalism that gave us the Progressive Party, the New Deal, and the Great Society. But he's an ancestor, too, of radical American expressionism as varied as the Populist Party, the Industrial Workers of the World, the American Communist Party, and the Students for a Democratic Society. Yeah, his story through the, through the founding era starts really in the 1740s and 50s and kind of climaxes and then he dies in the 1790s and so he he was he started as a radical very early on and in the end came into conflict with George Washington and died as a result of being imprisoned um, for his activities in the whiskey rebellion of the 1790s so it's kind of a tragic arc and it, I think he's a bit of a difficult ancestor for liberals to claim even though he modern liberals, I mean, because he, he envisioned liberal programs like Great Society programs, New Deal programs, Social Security and progressive taxation and going off the gold standard and all kinds of things that actually didn't get accomplished until, you know, the mid to late 20th century. And yet, if we tried to hold him up as an early sort of founder of American progressivism, we'd have to deal with the extremes. Uh, to which husband was willing to go. We'd have to see that our hero, if, that, if he became our hero, a hero to liberals, uh, we'd have to see that he um, was actually at odds with 
history, was on the wrong side in a sense of history, and was at odds with George Washington. And that would pose kind of a political conflict in how we use our history today. You say in the book when he read the U.S. Constitution, he was appalled. He was appalled. He had high hopes for the U.S. Constitution. Um, and he knew George Washington, whom he admired immensely, had been involved in its creation and so forth. And he expected, husband expected as late as the late 1780s, um, for the nation as it formed itself, to form itself around what he considered to be democratic, egalitarian principles. And when he read the Constitution, he felt that it had formed itself around privileging the bondholding class, the lending class, the banking class, and so forth, and saw it as a huge betrayal of everything he had done since the 1750s and 60s. Um, and then he, then he became a leader of the Whiskey Rebels, who rose up against it's, it's called the Whiskey Rebellion, um, but they weren't only interested in whiskey. They were rising up against what they saw as a regressive finance policy of the new federal government. Can you explain that? You've been on this program before for two books. One was about the Whiskey Rebellion, and that, that plays a part in this. Can you explain how it fits in? Yeah, I started getting into this whole topic when I began my first book, which was the Whiskey Rebellion, um, some time ago. And, and this book... In this book, The Whiskey Rebellion makes a return appearance. It's only half a chapter toward the end because uh, this book, it, my first book on The Whiskey Rebellion is a pretty detailed narrative of blow-by-blow, day-to-day narrative of what occurred during the, the events known today as The Whiskey Rebellion and the, and the suppression of Western Pennsylvania that came in its wake. Um, but this book is a, much, is a more wide-ranging book that starts, as I've said, back in the 1750s and goes right up through that, that era. But I do see The Whiskey Rebellion as the climax to the struggles over economics and finance that went on bef well before the revolution among Americans, played into the revolution and were complicated by the revolution um, in certain ways, and then came out of the revolution still with Americans in conflict about how we should create the country around finance and economics, and then climaxed uh, in the Whiskey Rebellion when Western Pennsylvanians, joined by other Westerners actually from Kentucky and Maryland and the western part of Virginia then, that is now West Virginia, joined together to rise up against and ultimately at least flirt with the idea of seceding from the Union over these finance issues. Uh, jumping around a little bit, but I want to ask you about West Sylvania. You say uh, that uh, a Pennsylvania and Western Virginia movement called the region West Sylvania inspired a Pennsylvania law making it a capital crime to even discuss independence from the Congress. Yeah, there was a, there was a lot of ferment and when things were just hadn't been nailed down yet, uh, in 1770s and 1780s, um, before we had a constitution, really, and it continued after we did have a constitution. There was a. It wasn't just in the western part of, of Pennsylvania. It was many other places around the country that were sort of beyond, you know, f f remote from the East Coast. So that the Pittsburgh area, for example, what we that it was the Pittsburgh area then. It, it was a. It was a small sort of western outpost at the time. Uh, was very much at odds with sort of the Philadelphia area in Pennsylvania because Philadelphia was you know, the, the seat of government and money and wealth and influence and trade and so forth. And you get across the, up onto the top of the mountains and down the other side of the mountains and you've, you're in a completely different kind of environment. And there was great conflict between the Westerners of the period and Easterners. So the, the competition between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh is nothing new. It's nothing new. It goes right back to our founding. I want to read you something you wrote about the Whiskey Rebellion. You say the... Uh, the rebels weren't against taxes. They weren't even against federal taxes. In many cases, they weren't against national government. But what they said they wanted in cogent published petitions and resolutions is equal taxation and taxes in proportion to property, progressive taxation. 
what what did they want as opposed to what they were getting? Well, they were getting uh, Hamilton's whiskey tax, uh, which was which for complicated reasons that I touch on in the book, but I don't go into every detail in this book, was actually a very regressive tax, largely intended by Hamilton to shut down small seasonal artisanal distillers, and favor big sort of more corporate, more industrial distillers in, in keeping with Hamilton's vision for the future of the country, which was that it would be a much more, you know, large scale, innovative, centralized um, kind of industry. Um, and that all, he wanted all industry to be that way. So his purpose of the tax on whiskey was to consolidate the industry? Oh yes, very much so, yeah. And I don't think he would have made any real bones about that. I mean, that was his, really his, his genius was seeing uh, an America, a modern American future with much more large scale consolidated industry um, and financed by, largely financed by a kind of consolidated finance class that was very closely connected to the national government. So all of that to him went together in a pretty integrated way. And if you look, you know, if you, I, I do some walking readers through this, but not in, in crazy detail. But um, if you look at his early finance plans as he submitted them to Congress, I mean, every, every nuance and every detail is nailed down to sort of, you know, he knew everything there. By the time he brought that whiskey tax in, he knew everything there was to know about the making of whiskey. He was that kind of, of genius in a way. Um, so the, the Westerners wanted another kind of taxation. They wanted what they considered to be equal taxation, a taxation that was not brought against them in order to support interest payments to federal bondholders, which they imagine saw as taking their money away and kind of giving it to a federally connected banking class, basically, and a lending class. They wanted taxes that were fair in their, in their view. Now, your book is called Founding Finance. I'm, I'm not sure we've exactly talked about the, the topic of your book yet, but what, what do you mean by founding finance? Well, all these things really are the topic of the book, actually. I think we are talking about them, and we're kind of taking these glancing looks at these various elements of, of what I'm calling founding finance. Um, the subtitle of my book is, is long, and I wanted it to be even longer because I wanted to kind of just do a catch-all for everything I'm talking about. So, I mean, my, in my mind, my real kind of improvised subtitle is something like... Um, you know, it's, it's debt, public debt, private debt, uh, lending, landlords, tenants, uprisings, uh, protests, crackdowns, foreclosure crises, many things that we're concerned about today in our own finance crisis, our own financial crisis, at regulation, what, to, what, what the proper role of government should be in an independent uh, Republican America. Um, in relation to regulating the economy and on whose, on whose behalf um, laws and taxes and, and rules about debt and so forth should be passed. Well, when, when independence was declared and we had the, the colonial eco economic system in place, what did they have to change and why change anything? What was the system before independence? Well, one of the things they changed, um, and you know, the, si the economic systems before independence are pretty complicated and they varied in some ways region to region. Um, but the things I focus on, um, before I talk about what they changed, I guess I'll answer your question, which is what, what the system was. I mean, I'm, I can't absolutely sum up the system of economics in America before the revolution, but I, I think what we, what we t sort of imagine uh, colonial America to have been like was a kind of freeholding America in which every family 
um, poor, middle class, rich, was kind of all in the same boat on some level, owning a farm outright and working your land and trying to develop yourself economically and hoping for freedom from onerous uh, regulations of the British government, for example. That's kind of a, a fairly common view of what things were like economically before the revolution. Um, and what I try to focus on in the book is the degree to which there was already, among Americans, uh, degrees of inequality uh, and, and different kinds of stakes in different parts of society well before the revolution so that actually I think we minimize, we tend to minimize how much tenant farming there was in America before the revolution, how much consolidation of land went on among the rich landowners uh, before the revolution. The Livingstons are one example I give in the book who up in upstate New York owned millions and millions and millions of, of acres of land farmed largely by tenant farmers who didn't own their own land. Tenancy was a system in which some people could rise up and save enough to buy their own land, and that's sort of the happier and the better idea of tenancy. But frequently, and increasingly actually, as we went toward the revolution, um, many scholars say that tenancy was becoming more and more of a problem, and people were terrified of falling into a cycle of debt to the landowners in which they could never break out of tenancy. So the economic systems that prevailed before the revolution were, were not all as sort of egalitarian as we might wish to think. With the, you know, we often want to think that it was all going great except for England kind of breathing down our necks. And once we get rid of them, then, then we get this kind of nice middle class, you know, a wide spectrum of middle class America and everybody gets to sort of move up once we get the onerous British trade regulations out of the way. And in my book, I object to that, uh, that reading and, and try to bring some what I think of as greater realism to a vision of America that prevailed before, during, and after the revolution. Did the economic strata, the, the, the upper class, the money class, and then the, the tradesmen and then the laborers. Did that change with the revolution or were the rich still rich and the poor still poor? I think some things did change um, and, in, and you know, in, in some fascinating ways. And many historians focus on the ways in which, um, in which because of the revolution, um, class deference and so forth began to break down in America. And those historians sort of like to trace a, a view of America in which because of the the need for popular support for the revolution and and because of what of the of the, some of the ideology of the revolution having to do with equality and liberty and so forth um, many uh, uh, many class distinctions that had prevailed before the revolution began to break down and we kind of then rolled forward toward maybe the Jackson era in which some of the conflicts between say a Madison and a Hamilton begin to sort of fall away or get sort of superseded by a more democratic America in which a kind of rowdier small capitalism less deferential less sort of British uh, way of life then began to prevail and while many of those things are no doubt true my tendency is to think that we might be over-exaggerating some of the sort of sense of inevitability in which America just sort of rolls forward thanks to the revolution and becomes more democratic. And I'm always going to be kind of like pulling the reins back on that a little bit. And in the book, I'm, I'm talking about the things that did not change, um, that did, where uh, conditions of inequality that, that did not change. And in fact, for some people, especially I'd say the Western people, and when we're talking about the West, we're talking about you know the great American West of really the Alleghenies and, and, and the, 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 uh, the Appalachian chain and so forth was then the West. Um, for people in the West, I think things got often harder after the revolution. And this led to a great deal of ferment, which, I, which in my book, I, in Founding Finance, I, I kind of take toward the creation of the Constitution. Um, the 1780s were a period of great turbulence uh, in America, which we sometimes 
forget about turbulence over these very economic and class issues. And the Constitution was an attempt to resolve some of those issues. What did they use for currency in the colonial era and immediately after? Um, it varied um, place to place for various reasons. Money was considered to be hard, cold metal, cash, uh, gold and silver. Um, paper money was not yet um, considered to be the real thing, the real money. But there were many, many, many kinds of paper instruments out and about in, in, in society. Um, rich people, bankers, used, used high denomination bills of exchange backed or technically backed by gold and silver reserves. So they didn't depreciate the same way because they came out of the banking houses of Europe or they came out of merchant houses where they actually had the gold and silver in their coffers or said they did. But there were also popular forms of currency, uh, paper and so forth. Um, sometimes governments, I'm talking about colonial governments now, uh, assemblies before the revolution, um, issued, issued uh, low low-term, easy-term debt uh, loans. Um, so these, these certificates would be land banks, they were called. And these, these loan certificates would actually sometimes enter the, the population as forms of currency. And then sometimes um, the, various, uh, the various colonies would issue paper currencies, government currencies, to ease trades, to ease trade for ordinary people. But the problem is they were rarely, they were often not backed by gold and silver. They were issued because there wasn't enough gold and silver around. Um, and sometimes when handled improperly, they depreciated, sometimes they depreciated extremely. So many people in the lending industries, for example, came to dislike them because they would if, if people want to pay their interest or their principal on loans in paper, uh, that they would, if they were devaluing extremely, it would seem to be robbing the creditor of the value of the loan. How did the Continental Congress pay the costs of the Revolutionary War? Well, they issued their own currency, which famously de depreciated de disastrously, um, maybe not as quickly or as disastrously as some people emphasize, but it did depreciate to the point where by the end when they had to take it out of circulation, I mean, nobody was using it except, you know, speculators would buy it at like 500 to 1, just hoping something might be worth something someday. In the beginning, they just printed money and said, here, take this? Well, they did print money, yeah. That, that's what they did. Um, but to, to make it work, they had to borrow. Um, and we, we, we know something, I mean, many uh, readers of, of history, I think, are aware of the foreign debt that we, that we took on. Um, and we know about John Adams going over later to sort of negotiate in Holland and France and so forth. Um, and that, that foreign debt is very important. But I focus in founding finance more on the domestic debt. Um, the, the country, the, the, the country, the, the Congress that was running the war, created really the founding debt, the founding domestic debt of the United States was a war debt um, owed to credit individuals private creditors um, rich people uh, rich Americans who were investing in a sense in the war and were expecting to get interest payments on bonds essentially. they expected to make money on the deal oh they expected to make money on the deal yes we often uh, again emphasize the patriotic nature of their contribution to the war effort and far be it from me to say that it was not patriotic I think obviously these things were mixed but I do note in the book that when the Congress first floated these bonds at four percent that would be four percent tax-free by the way that income would never have been taxed we have to keep that in mind um, nobody bit um, the Congress was offering to pay the pay the interest in continental paper and the merchant class that was the investing class didn't want to be paid in continental paper for many obvious reasons. Um, the Congress then raised it to 6%, but still paying in continental paper, no takers. It was when a French loan 
was was achieved, uh, you know, I think bills of exchange backed by gold and silver um, were were used as the way of paying the interest, and 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 a fairly small circle of finance people knew about this deal. Friends of the super, the man who became the superintendent of finance for the Congress, Robert Morris, they uh, they got in on it then because now they knew that there was actually gold and silver backing this up somewhere. Tell me who Robert Morris is was. Uh, another one of the most fascinating people of the period to me, and better known than, say, Herman Husband, who was at the opposite end of the political spectrum from Robert Morris, but yet um, still not as well known as I would, I would hope you know, he would be, um, because he really helped form the country, uh, turn the country into a nation um, in a way that he, he was one of the first visionaries of nationhood, a mentor of Alexander Hamilton, actually. Um, and so he became the superintendent of finance for the Continental Congress during the Revolutionary War. Did he have financial problems later on, or he went broke? Yeah, he had big financial problems later on. He was, he might be somewhat resonant today when we think about our recent financial crisis. I mean, he was, he was the wizard of finance of the period. And in a way, he really was the wizard of finance in the period. I mean, without him, I don't think the country could have come into existence or even necessarily won the war without his financial wheelings and dealings. But he was a wheeler-dealer and a kind of a, 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 an operator in, you know, exotic forms of finance and sometimes dubious uh, debt instruments and a big-time speculator in Western land. And he ended up in debtor's prison uh, years later. So here we have our, find, our founding high financier and one of the great geniuses of finance just kind of blowing it um, at the same time and ending up in prison. Can you explain what the Newberg controversy was? Yes, one of the more distressing element, uh, aspects of our founding period. Um, Many people know about it as the moment when Washington heroically prevented a, a, a coup, a, a mutiny in, in the Continental Army at Newburgh, New York, which is where the army, the main part of Washington's army was, was staying as the war basically wound down, as peace was on the horizon. Um, and there was within the army a movement to throw Washington out and take over because the officer class was very concerned with not having been paid, understandably enough. Um, they sent emissaries, officer emissaries, to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia and demanded payment. And Robert Morris saw this as an opportunity to kind of weld the officer class of the country to the bondholding class. And through a series of, of pretty scary, it was pretty scary at the time for the people, for the men in Congress to think that maybe, you know, all the army would have had to do, all the officer class would have had to do at that moment, they were armed and they were the military of the country at that moment. I mean, all they would have had to do is refuse to lay down their arms, refuse to take orders from the Congress in the same way maybe that the militia privates in Pennsylvania had finally decided not to take orders from the Pennsylvania Assembly. Uh, then we would have had a, uh, you know, a military coup potentially, and uh, some people thought Washington should lead that, that, uh, that coup um, and become kind of the benevolent dictator. Robert Morris and his people, including Alexander Hamilton, saw this as an opportunity to sort of scare the Congress into passing a tax. What they wanted was a tax that would support interest payments to the bondholders. And so the, the, the urge within the officer class to potentially take over and get paid, and the urge on the bond side of the bondholding interest and the high finance interest to, to create a large bondholding class with government connections came together in a pretty scary way. And uh, Washington, Hamilton tried to invite Washington into the conspiracy, which is uh, not too strong a word to use for it, 
not it's not clear whether Hamilton and Morris and Morris's assistant, Governor Morris, uh, not a personal, not a, not an actual relation, but same name, and they were very close. Uh, it's not clear whether they really intended to actually have a coup and take over the country. Um, although there's a one letter from Hamilton to Washington where he seems to confess to that, and then it's crossed out um, in the original. Um, but still, it's not clear if, they, or if they just wanted to threaten the Congress with the idea that if they didn't you know, step up, fund these bonds, pass a tax, pay the officer class and all the other bondholders um, that there would threaten them that there would be a coup, which is a distinction that, that I don't think we, we know how to make. But Washington did not play along. Um, he did not want to be the leader of such, of such a thing. And he put down the mutiny that was potentially going to be led by General Gates um, in a very dramatic scene, which has been, has been told many times, and I tell it again in the book. Um, what's interesting, though, to me is that after that moment, and you know, Congress heaved a huge sigh of relief, and the officers now were mollified because they became bondholders. Uh, they joined the bondholding class. So now we have this founding military bondholding class, interstate bondholding class, um, which is interesting because why, it was Washington's idea in the first place to send those officers to the Congress and tell them, you need to pay these, you need to pay these officers. And Washington always made clear later to Hamilton that he supported the, the goals of Morris and Hamilton in forming a nation based on you know being true to the public creditors. So that's that's the story I tell in the book, and it's pre a pretty dramatic one. So did the officers get paid? Ultimately, yes, they got paid in bonds. And when Hamilton came in, and when we formed a nation, and Hamilton came in as Treasury Secretary, they got paid the same way all the other bondholders got paid, yes. You have a chapter entitled uh, something to the effect that uh, whether we like it or not, we live in Alexander Hamilton's America. Yeah, I called it, it's Hamilton's America, we just live in it, like the old Sinatra slogan. Um, I tried to title these chapters in amusing ways, and you know, I don't necessarily think it's absolutely Hamilton's America and we just live in it, but the Hamiltonians uh, tend to, to, to note that Hamilton was the man who saw modern America. I mean, we talked about it earlier, the big industrialized, well-financed uh, America with you know, fluid capital markets and so forth and so on, and he had that vision. And so in that sense, I mean, you can say, there's a lot of complexity to this, but you can say along with the Hamiltonians today that Hamilton really won in the battles that went on, financial battles that went on at the time. What did he want? What was his vision? Well, he wanted a, a, a finance class, a high finance class that was connected to the government because he saw, uh, on the British model basically, he saw that government could do, a national government could do amazing things even if it weren't super rich. Uh, if it had access to money through borrowing from a government-connected class of creditors. So he, he wanted to organize that class, basically, around ambitious government projects. The most ambitious government project of that kind, of course, is always war. And this whole model really came out of what we just discussed, the financing of the war through borrowing domestically. Um, but there were other things he wanted to do, too. He, he always had a, a martial and a military side, and he was interested in war as a unifying principle for nationhood. But he also wanted to create public-private partnerships to sort of fund certain I industries, regulate others. Um, he tried to create a model sort of uh, industrial city at the Falls of the Passaic in Patterson, New Jersey, for example, um, to sort of show what a, what a, what a private partner private-public partnership could do, um, very forward-looking stuff. What would Alexander Hamilton think of America today, how things turned out? 
Wow. I, you know, it's so hard to imagine what any of the founders would say, because you'd have to sort of remove all the things that would just overwhelm them with modern strangeness and so forth. Like, you know, could he have, he had this great industrial vision, which was somewhat stymied in his time. I mean, his finance vision did in many ways prevail, but his industrial vision got frustrated in many ways. But so he couldn't have envisioned the kind of technology necessarily that we have today. Um, but I think in many ways, Hamilton would have recognized the impulses behind big industry um, and big corporations and big money. I think he would have recognized them and basically approved them. And I think he would have been very impatient with many of the impulses around, uh, around greater e egalitarian kinds of democracy that we have today. I think he would have possibly been quite impatient with that with that with those things although Hamiltonians would disagree and would say that in some ways he's one of the authors of of modern democratic egalitarianism because he rose up from he didn't come from a classy background and he rose up and he tried to set the world up so that others could rise up too and there's an element of truth to that or an element with which I agree um, but I also think he was very impatient with any kind of radical egalitarianism of the kind at the time that was brought forth by Thomas Paine for example and you suggest in the book that Alexander Hamilton did not dislike debt. I mean, he kind of liked the federal government to have debt. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, What's the advantage of debt? Well, it's that same thing I was just talking about. I mean, when you, when you need to create a pool of money for the government to use, you need to get it somewhere. Um, and you could just tax everyone to the point of just making the government rich so it always had its own money. But I think he saw a much more nimble and realistic way to do that, which was to borrow. Um, and so... And it's actually hard for me to imagine how any nation state um, emerging in the 18th century. I mean, the, the whole, uh, the, this is one of the most sort of striking aspects of founding finance to me is that our early nationalists, the people who saw nationhood as opposed to a confederacy of independent smaller states, were, 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 were financiers and believed in, a consoli in, in consolidating wealth around a debt. Um, because, of course, it's a debt owed by the nation, but it's somebody else's investment. You know, one person's debt is someone else's asset. And so the bonds were held as an investment by a small group of rich people. And I think he saw immense advantages nationally to, to the nation growing and becoming really the kind of um, financial empire that for a time and the kind of influential country around the world that we have been. Did Hamilton get rich through the, the system he set up? I don't think anyone's ever been able to prove uh, that he was in it for his own personal gain. Robert Morris was the richest person in America and flagrantly mingled personal and private finance and got fabulously rich. You know, Robert Morris, Hamilton's mentor, uh, he financed the revolution, but the revolution also financed him. He was a profiteer at the same time that he was also using his own funds to, to supply the war. Um, and he did get fabulously rich, and he also, of course, ended up in debtor's prison. He was flying on a, on a, he was playing a very dangerous game, I think, a lot of the time. But Hamilton, no, I, I don't think he was in it to enrich himself. I think his ambitions were vaster than that. I think he was, I think he wanted to be the architect of a great nation. Um, and he did, he did well in his legal profession, I believe, and I don't think he, but I don't think he was lining his own pockets uh, with this plan, no. You say in your book, the, the Tea Party and Grover Norquist to the contrary, the Constitution came about precisely to enable a large government to tax all Americans for the specific purpose of funding a large public debt. 
Yeah, that's Hamiltonianism, like put into as potted as I can get it. Uh, that's Hamil that's the Hamiltonian national vision, and. Um, I take issue with those who call themselves constitutional conservatives who associate um, sort of essential principles of, of American constitutionalism with an anti-tax movement or a small government movement or an anti-debt movement. Because I think the, uh, the, the Constitution, as Hamilton saw it, and I would also add that while Madison became Hamilton's opponent once the Constitution came into existence, um, Madison's early vision for the Constitution was very much in keeping with that of Hamilton. So the authors of the Constitution, um, Madison, Hamilton, who people try, some people try to leave out of, of authorship of the Constitution, but I think his ideas were very much alive in it. Um, they all were trying to make sure that the public credit could be established via a national government and that taxes could be collected to support interest payments to the debt to the bondholding class not to pay off that debt although ultimately Hamilton never would have wanted any issuance of debt to become permanent you're not going to be able to get lenders if you're going to if no one thinks it's ever possible to pay it off but nonetheless to permanently be able to borrow and to tax for that purpose, for the purpose of paying interest on that debt. I mean, this is, this is really what they were doing there. That's what they thought they were doing there at the Constitutional Convention. And so I find it contradictory uh, at best that Norquist and the Constitutional Conservatives, so-called, see it as an elemental, almost constitutional principle that government should be whatever they think of as small, because of course the government they created was massive compared to what had existed before in America, or that it should not take on debt or that it shouldn't tax for that purpose. So the, the people who wanted an egalitarian, more democratic with a small d country lost? Um, yeah, they did lose. Uh, Herman Husband's the sort of tragic classic example because he really believed all the way along until the 1790s, he until he read the Constitution and saw the whiskey tax coming, he believed that his goals as a radical egalitarian were in keeping with the goals of the famous founders. Many of Husband's early partners in the North Carolina regulation in the 1760s w did not see things that way. They became loyalists because they believed that the new government, that, that uh, the American revolutionaries, the famous ones, the Eastern merchants and bankers and so forth and landowners, were not for the, for the ordinary working person. But Husband said, no, this is going to be it. We're going to become free of England and we're going to have this egalitarian society here. And um, he found out to his pain and suffering that his goals and the goals of, say, Washington or Adams or Madison or Hamilton were not his own goals. And so, yeah, they did. And Thomas Paine's another another example who I discuss in the book who lost, really. Yeah. When the revolution came along and people had to decide whether they were siding with the revolution or, or being loyalists, were those splits along economic lines or did you find wealthy loyalists and wealthy rebels and poor loyalists and poor rebels? I don't think they break down. That. Loyalism versus revolutionaries don't break. Loyalists versus revolutionaries I don't think do break down along along class lines. I'm interested, you know, there were a lot of rich loyalists, that's for sure. Um, I'm always interested in the kind of the exceptions um, t because, or the, the more idiosyncratic uh, responses. And I think those I was just talking about, the kind of the small farmers and artisans who did not go along with the revolution, I think are, are kind of an interesting crew because we tend to think of all loyalists as being rich, British connected, sort of necrotic, decadent, you know, I mean, you know, but it really, it really wasn't that clear at all at the time. Um, would you talk a little bit more about Thomas Paine? 
Yeah, Payne is, you know, so much better known than Herman Husband and had a different, you know, a related but a different radical view for the future of America. Um, but, and many people today um, are interested in pain and cite pain and see themselves as descendants, political descendants of pain. And that's funny because it's, it's across the political spectrum. I mean, many very progressive people see pain as an ancestor and many conservatives do. I mean, Glenn Beck, uh, the conservative uh, leader, talk show host and so forth, um, did a whole book on, on Thomas Paine presenting his own view as sort of coming out of Paine's. So Paine is very, his, his work, because he was so idiosyncratic and so smart, and because he actually looked at things in such a, he looked at things in a very fair-minded way, you, it's very hard to pin him down sometimes because he had his own way of looking at things. But he was uh, deeply committed to a, to a small-D democratic egalitarian America, um, and, and his journey is also, like husbands, quite a painful one, I think, in the end, because he, saw, he, went, he ended up going to France, of course, and joining the, French, the revolutionary French government. And he had such high hopes for that government. And so we can see him as naive in a way because he poo-pooed any violence really coming out of, of France as being a problem. And he didn't really see the true terror coming until it was right on top of him. He was in France arguing for, the, for sparing the life of the king. Because to pain, you know, why would we kill this guy? There are no kings. That world is over. Let's not glorify him by killing him in that sense. Let's not, let's not give monarchy any credit. Let's just say, send him to America and call him Mr. instead of King. And then we're good. The world's going to be a different place. And that was seen by that French government at that time as a counter-revolutionary activity. And he, Paine, was thrown in prison in, Fran in Paris and destined, really, seemed to himself and very possibly destined for the guillotine himself, and as everybody was being caught up in that, in that terror. Uh, and the horrible thing for him is he said, oh, but I'm, I'll be okay, he says. He sat there in prison, once again being naive. I'm friends with George Washington. I'm an American, I'm an American. they'll claim me as a citizen, even though he was born in, in, uh, in England. They'll claim me as a citizen because without you know, common sense and without everything he had done in 76, so many, now, now quite a long time earlier, uh, they wouldn't even have a, a country there. But he was left there by the federal government. Uh, they did not claim him as a citizen. And Gouverneur Morris, who I mentioned earlier, was at that time the minister to France, said, mm, he seems to us to be an English citizen. And, you know, he did a lot of stuff in America. And then he came to France and accepted citizenship in France, which Paine had. Uh, you know, he, he was kind of like, yeah, don't know much about this guy. Um, you know, just tell me what happened. Keep me informed basically. So they, they washed their hands of him, and he did not die there. Um, Robespierre himself was executed. Payne was brought out of prison by uh, Monroe, who, was, who replaced Governor Morris as the, as the minister and came back to the United States. But I think, I think he was broken. I think his disillusionment with Washington and with America at that point was so intense. He, had, he only saw it at the last minute, sitting in prison ready to die, that I think it overwhelmed him. And uh, he was he was never the same again. And, you know, six people came to his funeral. He had a personal relationship with George Washington. They were close friends, which is one of the things that they had been close friends, which is one of the things that makes it so poignant and so strange, too, that Paine was so filled with revolutionary fervor that he could not see that he and Washington had ultimately come to be on different sides. He just couldn't see it. I think to Washington it was clear as a bell that Paine had become too radical for anything Washington was going to support in America. Paine just couldn't see it. And so it was a personal matter to him. Uh, whereas Herman Husband 
didn't know Washington personally and sort of glorified him and then was disappointed with where he went. For Payne, it was a very personal matter. And so he came out of prison just enraged with Washington and wrote him at the, you know, later wrote him this open letter of just complete vitriol, saying that Washington had no principles and, you know, just, it was, it's just a very painful story. You also write that John Adams was appalled at common sense, the, the book that he was too. I just heard myself say it's a painful story, and that's always a weird pun when you're talking about pain. Um, yes, early on, John Adams made no bones about his dislike for pain, even though they were collaborating in Philadelphia in 1776, organizing the militias and organizing the Congress around throwing Dickinson out in 1776. Yet, Adams and Paine had no, there was no love lost there. Paine's ideas in common sense for, um, for a more democratic America uh, were just anathema to, to uh, Adams's ideas for a more Republican and elite and stable America. And so they actually had a shouting match, according to Adams. They, uh, this is back in 1776. They had a shouting match in, in Adams's rooms in Philadelphia. Paine came over and said, you know, Adams had just published thoughts on government, basically an anti-common sense idea of what Amer an American, uh, an American uh, nation should look like um, from a political point of view. And Payne was, according to Adams, Payne was very upset about it. Um, so they had this argument uh, right there. And um, you know, we don't know what happened during that argument for real because, of course, Adams is always very self-serving in his descriptions of, you know, he's like, oh, so-and-so took issue with what I said, and I said, blah, 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 and they had nothing to say. You know, that's his way of remembering these things, and we depend on his memories, of course, too. So we don't know what actually happened, but, um, it's, it, to me, it's a great, difficult but great symbol of this very conflict I'm talking about in founding finance and the idea of how an economy should, what, how, how much you want to let the economy be, a, a national economy be controlled by ordinary people. Because uh, Adams was very interested in retaining the property qualification for voting. He believed that people should have property if they were going to vote. And Payne had come to believe that we had to get rid of property qualifications, and that's what the radical Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776 actually did in real life. And Adams hated that Constitution, um, and didn't. He made sure that in Massachusetts, nothing like that came about um, on, on his watch. So this argument between them, this, they actually had an argument. Uh, and I wish, you know, if one could be a fly on the wall, it would be great. But I, I see it as kind of a a moment in founding history in terms of conflicts over finance and economics. You have these two equally important men, uh, e equally important to the revolution, saying what the revolution should be for, and they're absolutely at odds. Did, did George Washington side with Hamilton on that argument? Yes, he did. And is that what tipped it, or was uh, Hamilton going to win anyway? Well, I don't know what would have happened anyway. You know, we don't know in the what if story, but um, Washington was very much in favor of the proposals that Hamilton and Robert Morris had been making going back to the 1780s before Washington, well before Washington was president. And Washington knew that the revolution had involved a great deal of risk and difficulty and wanted great stability in the country. And he supported the, the, the Hamilton point of view and he carried it out in Western Pennsylvania in suppressing the, 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 I'd say suppressing the Whiskey Rebellion, but they really suppressed all of Western Pennsylvania at that time to kind of make the point that the national government was in charge and taxes were going to be collected uh, by law to support the federal bondholders. That was, and that was Washington not just supporting it abstractly, but he, you know, he led the troops that 
that went out to Western Pennsylvania, uh, troops against against America, led troops against American citizens to make that point. So I don't know what would have happened anyway, because it's hard to imagine a Hamilton without a Washington. Actually, even um, they were they, their relationship was so mutually uh, dependent in some ways. But I, uh, he without Washington's efforts, personal efforts, um, I don't think that uh, Washington definitely helped make that helped win that war with, um, within within America. Why didn't the American Revolution end up like the French Revolution, with a reign of terror and a lot of executions and then ending up ultimately with an emperor? Well, the, the historians who favor the kind of the more conservative founders would say it's because of the more conservative founders, because they didn't um, go, that, go down that road, because they, they refused to make the country sort of democratic over, small d, democratic overnight. They took their time, they were deliberate, um, and they resisted uh, the pain approach. Um, and there's a, there's a point to that, because we don't know what would have happened if um, real radicals like Paine and Thomas Young and James Cannon and Herman Husband and so forth, who I talk about in the book, uh, if they had taken over, what would have happened? We'll never know that, and you can't prove a negative. In, in, in Pennsylvania, when the radicals did take over, and they did, and they wrote a constitution, Kind of, they kind of invented themselves overnight. There was no election uh, that put that put the radicals in power in Pennsylvania. They took over, but then they wrote a constitution with elections, and they carried out elections. And they that coup was bloodless. They actually just told the Pennsylvania Assembly, "We're not, we're not going to follow orders from you anymore." They didn't actually hang anybody up and start, and, and start rolling tumbles down the street. So I don't know that the conservative founders were right in thinking that all hell would have broken loose in a French way if we had become more democratic. And I don't know that the historians who favor that point of view are right either. How long were the radicals in charge in Pennsylvania? Uh, not very long. Um, and again, the, the other side, the sort of consensus side and the side that wants to say that, that the conservative American Revolution was really the right American Revolution, uh, that side will say that it was unworkable that that constitution was unworkable. So but around, right around the time the US Constitution came in and was ratified and so forth, a new constitution came into Pennsylvania as well, in which, I mean, it didn't, it didn't push everything back, but certain things were taken away and certain, certain powers were put back among, within the elite, in elite hands that, that had been taken out of elite hands. There are other historians, some of the progressive historians of the early 20th century took a different view and didn't believe that it was all such a disaster as everyone had said. Uh, it, it, it certain one thing that happened was the finance elites in Pennsylvania, the Robert Morrises of the world, um, got uh, got greater stability back for their way of doing things. Where did Ben Franklin fall on this issue? Yeah, it was one again one of the most fascinating stories, of course, because it's Franklin. Um, Franklin really does a does a wild kind of journey through this whole period because in the, back in the 1760s, he had wanted to bring royal government into Pennsylvania. Uh, Pennsylvania was a proprietary colony, as many of your viewers will know, um, didn't have royal government. Dickinson opposed that, um, and that's really how they became enemies back in the 1760s. Um, Dickinson had opposed Franklin's plan to bring royal government, bring the king into Pennsylvania. But then Franklin went to England, and he pushed his royal government plan in England, and then all this stuff started happening, and he ended up uh, getting sort of, sort of fleeing England. Um, with, with both the revolutionaries in America suspecting that maybe he was a Tory and with the English government suspecting he was a revolutionary. And he was actually in a little bit of, having been the most powerful politician in Pennsylvania for many years, he was in a bit of trouble when he got home in that way. And then he 
sat in the Congress and pretended to sleep and, and listened. And he ended up uh, really throwing his weight very quickly with those who were for independence, the Adamses, um, and again, again against his old enemy Dickinson. So that's a, and then he he oversaw the uh, the radical constitution uh, of Pennsylvania. He went all the way, really, into what with what into what happened in Pennsylvania. Um, so that's a that's a pretty interesting journey. Uh, we only have about two minutes left, and I meant to give you more time to talk about this. But you talk a little bit about David McCullough in your book and how you you were researching something and came across something that he you think missed? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say McCullough missed it. I mean, I think, you know, all historians make their choices. I'm critical of some of his choices in his very famous, very successful biography of John Adams. Um, and I would actually uh, mention John Furling's biography of John Adams as a possible counter, very readable, very interesting, popular biography of Adams. Um, because Furling gets into some things that McCullough doesn't. And I'm critical of McCullough in in, in, in this book, in Founding Finance, for, for what he leaves out. And, and I question kind of why he leaves it out. But I should add to that that it's not just the popular historians like McCullough. And I, I try to be a popular historian, too. <laughs> not, I'm not as popular as he is. I also question the academic history uh, on which McCullough and others have, have based uh, some of their more popular accounts. As, as I said earlier, this is your third time on the program, Whiskey Rebellion declaration and now founding finance. Is there a thread that runs through the three that you're trying to get across to people? Yeah, I do think that this book turned out to be a culmination of, of, of work I was doing in the other two. Um, I take a different approach in this one. I use the first person to talk about why I think things or why I would, what, you know, I, it's not purely narrative, although there are a lot of good stories in this book. The other two are purely narrative. But yeah, they really do go together in that way. I mean, this one picks up on stuff that's in both of those other books and tries to bring it to some sort of culmination. Do you have another book in the works? I, we'll see. I, I've been in the 18th century founding period for some time now. And, um, uh, but on the other hand, I feel like there's at least one more story maybe for me to tell in that period. But I'm not quite sure what it's going to be yet. Is writing books a full-time thing for you? No, no. I have to do other things partly to make money and partly to keep, my, keep myself sane um, because I get very involved in these things when I do them. And I, I write other things. I, I write about music, actually. I write about American uh, vernacular music, uh, roots, American roots music. Um, I write, uh, I do write work for hire. I've done work for, uh, I've, I've done actually quite a bit of copywriting for uh, web development and digital and online marketing, um, which is about as far from 18th century history as you can get, um, things like that. Well, we've been speaking with Bill Hoagland. He is the author of this book, Founding Finance. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Brian. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.